Good morning. My name is Mark. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Park. And it's my privilege to uh, preach God's word to you today. And as you might know, we've been going through a vision series over the past uh, few weeks. If you're new here or relatively new here, the vision of our church is proclaiming Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations. And today, I have the privilege of sharing with you about the last part of that vision, among neighbors and nations. When we say that we proclaim Christ in redemptive community among neighbors and nations, the last part of our vision encompasses mission, right, our mission. We're not just about proclaiming Christ here or building community here, but we want to proclaim Christ and build redemptive communities outside of these walls, among our neighbors in Cary, in Raleigh, in Durham, and among the nations all around the world. So the pastoral staff and the elders, uh, we crafted this vision statement to describe and guide what we do as a church. And there's so much we could say about what we mean when we say among neighbors and nations. But today, I want to dig a bit deeper and ask, before we even think about what is the specific mission of Trinity Park Church, I want to ask, what is the mission of God? What is the mission of God himself? What is God all about? And my hope today is to show you today from Scripture the mission of God and how our mission here at Trinity Park is an outgrowth of what God is up to. Uh, so would you pray with me again? Lord, thank you for the many reminders, even during this service, of the work that you're doing in our midst among people who you've called to serve uh, your kingdom, uh, such as Poe Wing and his wife. Um, thank you for these stories, these examples of your mission. I pray that you would be here with us now and you would teach us from your word, what you're up to, what you're about, what is at your very heart, Lord. Please be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that needs to be said about the mission of God is that that mission stretches all the way back to creation. God was on mission before sin entered the picture. He had a plan and purpose for humanity, for the world, before he said, let there be light. This mission of God is also a mission that stretches from creation all the way to the end of history. It's a mission that's ongoing and will continue until God makes all things right. So if we look from Genesis all the way to Revelation, what we find is this. Here's a summary of the mission. The mission of the holy God of Israel is to gather a holy people in a holy place among whom he will dwell forever. So a holy people in a holy place with their holy God, God with us. Let's look at a few passages now through the Old Testament and look at how these three things, a holy people, in a holy place, with a holy God, speak to the deepest of human desires. 
Because one thing that I want to show you today is that we were all created for these things. The entire world was made for this. So let's think about first, what is the mission of God in Scripture? How does God accomplish his mission? And finally, how do we here at Trinity Park fit into that mission? So first, what is the mission of God? We read from Genesis, and in the beginning, we know that God created the heavens and the earth. He created the world, and he said, it is good. The mission of God in Genesis was to create a holy place with the holy people, with whom he, a holy God, would dwell forever. And we see God doing that in Genesis 1 through 2. But first, let's consider what do we mean when we say that something is holy. We talked about this a bit uh, last week in youth group when we looked at Philippians where Paul addresses the church as saints, as holy ones. When most people think of the word holy or holiness, they usually think of moral purity, perfection, or uprightness, or doing everything right. But the concept of holiness is actually much deeper than that. The Bible describes a lot of things as holy. There's holy ground that Moses walks on when he sees the burning bush. The Bible talks about a holy Sabbath, holy vessels in the book of Numbers, a holy city in the book of Nehemiah. In all of these instances, the term holy doesn't refer to an internal moral quality, but what it means is that the person or the object which is holy has been consecrated, or it's been set apart for service to the Lord. There's nothing about that sand that Moses was walking on that made it extra holy. Holiness is a quality given to a person or a thing by God because they've been placed in a special relationship to him, and they've been set apart from things that are common. And when we talk about a holy God, which we also sang about today, God alone is holy in himself. No one makes God holy. To say that God is holy is to describe all that he is in himself. It describes his transcendence. It describes how he is God and we are not. Words really cannot do justice to this concept of the holiness of God. So what then is the mission of this holy God in Genesis 1? In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and within this world, he creates the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a holy place where God dwells with his people. And some scholars see the Garden of Eden as the first temple created by God. It's a the first temple, because it's, it was a place where God's presence was with his people. Also, if you read Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam a commission. He says, I want you to work the garden, and I want you to keep the garden. And these are the same commands that are given to the Israelite priests regarding the tabernacle and the temple. So the heavens and the earth that God made in Genesis 1 in the Garden of Eden They were a holy place created for his people. And after God finishes creating the earth, 
and all its inhabitants, he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now that God has made these things, he has a specific intention for those who are made in his image. And his intention was never that they would be alone in this garden. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The one thing that was not good in creation was that Adam was alone. So God created Eve and commanded both of them to multiply, which shows us that God's intention, his mission, was always to have a holy people to dwell with. Not just one person, not just even Adam and Eve, but a holy people. And I say holy people because Adam and Eve and their children, again, were to work the garden. They were to keep it. They were to spread the glory of God across the earth as they ruled over it. They were to rule as God's image bearers. They were to act as priests in a way. They were to obey God and be fruitful and multiply and spread the holiness of the garden to the ends of the earth. But We all know how the rest of that story goes. Though Adam and Eve were given a commission to work and keep the garden, and to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth, they both failed to trust in God's word. And Genesis 3 tells us the Lord drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve, God's holy people, were no longer holy. They lost the holy place of the Garden of Eden, and they lost intimate fellowship with their holy God. You can read the rest of Scripture, and what you see is that since humanity's exile from the Garden, humanity has been doing everything in their power to return to the Garden using whatever means available to them. We've been cast out from God's perspective, uh, presence, sorry, We've lost the fellowship, the intimate fellowship that belonged to Adam and Eve, and we've lost the garden that was our home. A holy place for a holy people with their holy God. All lost as God disperses his people across the entire earth. As much as the Bible, especially the Old Testament, can feel foreign to us in our 21st century context, I think so much is still exactly the same. All of us here desire these three things. The desire to be a holy people, the desire for a holy place, and to be with the holy God. These things are reflected in our desires for community, our desires for a place or for security, refuge, and our desires for God and his presence. This is true of us here at Trinity Park, and it's true of every human on this planet. We all want community. Uh, We all know, even if we deny it at times, that we need others. We were created for friendships, for family. But in our sin, we turn against each other, or we exclude one another. We experience the brokenness 
of loneliness or we experience the sin of racism. God calls us to enjoy community as brothers and sisters in Christ from all nations and tribes and tongues, but we in our sin turn against one another in jealousy, hate, pride. We all want a place, too. The desire for a place or a home is about more than just a physical space to live. It speaks to the desire for security, for the ability to take care of yourself and your family. It manifests in your striving after more and more money or more in your career. Because when God promised, for example, the land of Canaan to the Israelites, it wasn't just about a plot of land, but it was a land flowing with milk and honey, a land with abundant resources. When the disciples expect Jesus to overthrow the Romans and establish a new kingdom, that desire for a place was the desire for security, for peace from their enemies. And that's a desire that we all share. And finally, we all desire intimacy with God. This is true of people in all cultures, in all religious or non-religious backgrounds. Some, in some places of the world, it might be more explicit. Right? So uh, several years ago, I uh, had an opportunity to go to India. Um, and in a place like India, in the places where we were, it was very clear that people uh, wanted uh, some form of intimacy with God or a deity. Right? There was a temple or a shrine to a certain God on almost every uh, street. So it was very clear. People want God or some sort of divinity. People went to these places because they wanted to be near God or they perhaps wanted to control God's power or benefit from his power. God created us to enjoy him in intimate fellowship. And even those who deny God or who, those who claim to uh, be secular, those who are non-religious, even they in their hearts know this is true. What about here in America? Apple stores are uh, ubiquitous nowadays, but back when the, one of the first Apple stores opened in New York City, uh, one New York University uh, professor wrote that Apple stores are the new temples. He was talking about the Soho Apple Store. Some of you might be familiar with it or you might have seen pictures of it. He said that the architecture at the Soho Apple Store makes you feel that you are a part of something bigger. There's an opaque glass staircase that sweeps up to the second floor, which creates a space that emphasizes your smallness when you walk in. The floor plan of every Apple store is open, with tables where customers are forced to face others, creating an artificial sense of community. The genius bar techs are the new priests, and the high-definition images of the solar system serve to point your eyes upward at the endless possibilities available to anyone owns an iPhone. It sounds funny, but it's true. People in Cary, even if they say they have no interest in religion, they're all interested in some sort of bigger purpose, some spiritual experience. They long to be part of something bigger than themselves because they were created with a sense of God in them. So the reason why you want these things 
The reason why you'll do everything in your power to get these things is because you were created for these things. It's because it has been the mission of God from the beginning until the end to create a holy place for his holy people among whom he will dwell forever as their holy God. God with us. Emmanuel. That's the mission. But there's a problem. After Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence, we see the sad history of their children destroying community with one another through violence and war. We see them longing for a place, trying to make a name for themselves. But God, he is not done with his people. And in Genesis 12, he chooses one man, Abraham, or Abram there in Genesis 12, to be the one through whom God's blessing will spread to the ends of the earth. Uh, In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So God commands him to go to a land in verse 1. He's preparing a holy place for him. And then he goes on, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says he will make of Abram a great nation. All the families of the earth blessed through him. So you see there, his plan is to have a holy people through Abraham. In Genesis 17, we hear more about this promise or covenant God makes with Abram. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations And kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Like in Genesis 12, or uh, Genesis 12, God says here that he will give the land of Canaan to Abram and his descendants. The land of Canaan is described as a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where Abraham's descendants would enjoy a special communion with God, free from their enemies. And from there, they would be a blessing to the nations. Israel would be a light to the rest of the world from their home in Canaan as they spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth. The presence of God was there. His people were to be there. And notice also how God says that he will make Abraham exceedingly fruitful, right? He says in verse 2 that he will multiply Abraham greatly. Does that sound familiar? That's the language given to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's promising now that that original plan, his original mission, will come to fruition through Abraham. And he says in verse 8, speaking about Abraham's descendants, I will be their God. They will be my people, and I will be their God. This is the promise of God throughout the Bible. It echoes God's original plan for humanity, for all of us, from Genesis to Revelation. 
fast forward now uh, several generations. And eventually, you may be familiar with the story, through much toil and suffering, much sin and rebellion, the Israelites do enter the land of Canaan. They finally make it. They start to take the land, and the book of Joshua and Judges uh, tells that story. We don't have time to specifically look at those, but instead, let's fast forward a bit to the end of the conquest. Okay? Let's look at a passage now where it looks as though God's promise to Abraham has been fulfilled, where it seems as though the people of God have finally returned to the Garden of Eden. A holy people finally gathered in a holy place with their holy God. So uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8, this scene is Solomon, King Solomon, his dedication of the temple. If you remember the story, after Israel came into Canaan, the promised land, David became king over Israel. But because of the warfare that was surrounding him, because there was no peace in the land, he couldn't build a place for God's presence, a temple. But with Solomon, there's finally peace in the land. So here what uh, the passage says. Now I'll read it to you from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, you can just listen or you can follow along if you would like. 1 Kings 8, uh, chapter, uh, verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, whereas it was in your house to build a house, in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Imagine if the story ended there. Imagine if that were the final sentence in our Bibles. What a grand conclusion. You can imagine the credits beginning to roll in this grand story. Finally, God's mission fulfilled. The holy people of God gathered together in unity. The people dwelling in a land flowing with milk and honey with their king. And now a holy place has been built where Israel's holy God will dwell with them forever. But as you know, this is only chapter 8 of 1st and 2nd Kings. There are still about 40 chapters left. 40 chapters full of Israel's sin, disobedience, and God's judgment. Even Solomon turns away from God by worshiping 
other idols. Just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin, what we see is that Israel is also cast out of the land and away from God's presence when they're taken into exile. What hope, then, is there for Israel and for the entire world, for everyone, all of us who desire a holy place, to be a holy people with their holy God? That's the goal of God's mission. So let's look now at what it will take for God to complete his mission. Uh, In the passage that was read from Ezekiel, we hear about what God will do through the prophet. And God promises in Ezekiel to gather his people, right, the people who have been cast out, to gather them from the nations. He says he will give them a place, a land, and he says they will be his people, that promise again, and he will be their God. But the way God will bring this about in Ezekiel is by dealing with the root problem, which is sin. The way God will bring this about is by changing the hearts of his people, by giving them a new heart. And he does this through his son, Jesus. What we see in the Gospels is the dramatic reversal. The dramatic reversal of the Gospels is this. Jesus comes and gives up his holy place. He gives up his fellowship with his people and is forsaken by his holy God so that you might have a holy place as a holy people with a holy God. Jesus has it all, but he gives it all up for your sake. How did Jesus give up his holy place? He left his throne in heaven. He left his holy place. He left his kingdom to come down to earth where he says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Not only does Jesus give this up, but he also gives up the fellowship he enjoyed with his disciples and followers. Remember, the mission of God is to create a holy place for his holy people. God's intent is that his people would enjoy fellowship with one another. And Jesus had this fellowship. If you read the Gospels, the 12 disciples, the crowds following him. But at his most needy hour, his closest friends abandoned him. Not only does Jesus give up his holy place, not only does he give up his fellowship with his people, but as the ultimate act of love, Jesus goes to the cross and is forsaken by his holy father. On the cross, Jesus bears the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. We are the enemies of God, but Jesus, the Son of God, was made an enemy of God for our sake. So that through his sacrifice, we would be called sons and daughters of God. So that through his sacrifice on the cross, we could say, Abba, Father. It's through his sacrifice, through how Jesus gave up these things that now we can say that we have an imperishable inheritance. The country that Abraham was looking for, the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve 
lost as we dwell in God's presence, as we look forward to a heavenly Jerusalem, as we read in Revelation 21. That's the dramatic reversal of the gospel. The three desires that we all share, the desire for community, for place, for intimacy with God. Jesus had all of these, and he gave them up that you would have them. Think, thinking through what God's mission is from Genesis all the way to Revelation helps frame how we should think about our mission as a church. We're called to join into what God is already doing, what his heart desire is for the world. As a church, we are called to be Christ to our neighbors in Cary, Raleigh, and the world. When Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, right? The Great Commission, that's what uh, is usually the vision for missions in churches, right? When Jesus says, go and make disciples, he's also saying, go and do as I did, right? Be Christ to the world. And because Jesus has secured for us an imperishable inheritance in Christ, in heaven forever, we can now go out and be willing to give up our own safety, our own place for the sake of those who are seeking refuge, for those who are lonely, for those who are broken, for those who lack community. We can go knowing that we have brothers and sisters in Christ. We can go and we can love them and we can welcome them in, even if that means that we face tribulation, and suffering when we do so. We're called also to be Christ to each other here. You know, the mission of God, we often focus on how the mission means we should go to the nations and to our neighbors, which is true, but it also has to begin here. has to begin here. We here because of what Christ has secured for us, can now move towards those who are struggling to help them feel that they belong to the people of God. Maybe they come from a different background than you, and it makes, that, makes it hard for them to connect on their own, and it probably makes it hard for you also to want to approach them. But because of what we have in Jesus, we can approach them. It also means we reach out to our neighbors and to the nations in our communities. The nations are here. It also means that we go overseas with the hope that we have that can meet the desires of the hearts of all people. All of us, uh, we know that we live in an anxious age. A major war happening in Ukraine increasing polarization all around the world, economic instability everywhere you go, people are worrying. And they're asking, is there any hope? Because I don't see any hope on the news. But what if, in the sovereignty of God, all of these things that are happening are a way that he's revealing to us now that there is no hope in things which moth and rust destroy? 
What if God is using all of this anxiety and uncertainty in the world from the past few years to show the world that to find peace, we need to look to the God who has created us, the God who loves us, the God who reaches beyond the void to care for us. As a church, we are called to be a beacon of this hope to people in this anxious age, to love our neighbors in practical service, to love the nations who are in our midst, to those who might feel displaced, those who are seeking refuge and shelter, those who are seeking community or who feel alone, who may feel out of place because they faced racism or discrimination, and to love those who yearn for spirituality but are doing so in the wrong places or don't know about the good news of Jesus Christ. We do this with that message, with the message of the one who had all of these things and gave them up for you. We do this by pointing to the hope that we now have through Jesus in a heavenly home, that hope of Revelation 21, the hope of a new community of love and sacrifice created around Jesus, enjoying the presence of God as we worship him. So let us here at Trinity Park join in to what God is already doing. Let's join into his mission and what his heart is about from creation to the end of history. Let's proclaim that message to ourselves and then go out and proclaim the only hope there is for the world in Cary, in Durham, Raleigh, and the whole world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that from the beginning you had a plan for the whole world so we can rest in the midst of all this anxiety and uncertainty. We can rest and have peace in our hearts knowing that Christ has brought that mission to fulfillment. And you are continuing that work of spreading that hope to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us to joyfully join in to what you're already doing. Help us, Lord, to actively love one another and preach that hope to those who are here, to those who are not here, to those whom we work with, whom we live besides, those who are far off. Lord, it's the only hope that we have, and it's the hope that the whole world is yearning for. Lord, help us to be that beacon of hope here at Trinity Park. In Jesus' name I pray.